morning, please turn with me to John chapter 11. You remember that John chapter 11 is all about the glory of God, displayed by Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus's, Lazarus from the dead. Last week we looked at verses 47 through 54. The title of the message is Gospel Ministry, Battlefield, or Playground. And in light of how the chief priests and Pharisees responded after learning of this miracle of all miracles, well, look at verse 53. John chapter 11. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Remember who's being represented by the they? It's the Sanhedrin. The Jewish council, a council of Jewish leaders who had been empowered by Rome to exercise wide-ranging authority over their countrymen in matters of religion, criminal activity, and civic responsibility. This council consisted mostly of prominent Levites and priests. There were also scribes and teachers of the law included in the council, but they were by far the minority. But they're also the most popular amongst the common folk. I suggested last week that these two religious groups, the Pharisees and priests on the one hand, and the scribes and teachers on the law of the law on the other, functioned much like our present-day political parties. Only instead of liberal versus conservative versus NDP, it was the Pharisees versus the Sadducees. So it was this council, led by the high priest Caiaphas, who planned together to kill him, we are told, to kill Jesus. Therefore, we concluded that as Jesus' representatives or ambassadors in today's world, we need to be prepared for a battlefield rather than a playground as we celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. But clearly, this Jewish council, the, the Sanhedrin, represented the extreme on a continuum of responses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Not everyone wanted to kill him. So it was so if I was to draw that that continuum, I would put the Apostle John's purpose for writing this gospel account on one end of the continuum, to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and then on the far end of the continuum, I'd put the Sanhedrin who are planning together to kill him. And in between those two polar opposites, we have a variety of responses. In fact, it seems to me that the Apostle John is pausing here in his story or his account of the life and ministry of Jesus to provide a survey of some of those responses as Jesus prepares for the final week of his earthbound life. 
John is giving us the lay of the land, so to speak. It's like dipping our toe in the water before we jump into the pool. Before jumping into that final fatal week leading to his crucifixion. Six days. And so as we read through this text this morning, what I'd like you to be doing is watching for the responses that John identifies here in this passage of Scripture. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. We'll begin at verse 54 of John chapter 11 and read through to the end of John chapter 12, verse 11, beginning at verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, thank you for your patience. You exercise great patience when we are slow to grasp 
spiritual realities. Or even when we refuse to follow your clear directives as presented in the scriptures. Certainly we see the extent of your long-suffering, your patience, your relationship with Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then as we venture into the new, we read things like, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Thank you for your patience towards us. And Father, forgive us for our impatience with you when things don't go as we think they should, with others when they fail to meet our expectations. Enable us to be patient as you are patient, especially in our interactions with unbelievers. Thank you for the example we're discovering in Jesus, how he faithfully proclaimed the good news in an ever-increasing hostile environment. May we be found following him and become the recipients of the promise he used to call those first disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Use this episode here in John chapter 11 and 12 to prepare us further to be faithful fishermen, regardless of the response to our celebrations, demonstrations, and proclamations of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, anticipate a variety of responses to the gospel. Anticipate it. The gospel does call for a response. Every Tuesday morning, there is a small group of men that gathers here at the Rock Community Church. We gather to study God's Word and commit it to memory. Last year, it was 12 verses titled, Live the New Life. This year, we're working through six pairs of verses, all under the theme, Proclaim Christ. What I'd like to do this morning is review those verses with you. And as I review them, I'm going to draw a little diagram. Diagram that you have in front of you on the handout that you received in the bulletin this morning as part of the sermon notes. Hopefully you'll be able to fill it in, fill in the blanks, the diagram as they appear on the screen behind me. And I do apologize for the small print, but I needed to get it in on that size sheet of paper, and so I realize it is small. You might need a magnifying glass. You know, if I were to envision the ideal setting for presenting this material, we would be sitting one-on-one. A place like Tim Hortons. Or maybe in one of our kitchen tables. Our coffee cups would be empty and the small talk would be all but a memory. And we'd be feeling really comfortable with one another. And I begin by asking something like, would you mind helping me? 
by listening to some of my scripture memory. These verses, they present the, the central message of the Bible. In the very beginning, the Bible tells us that God created man and woman in his own image. And Adam and Eve enjoyed a wonderful, perfect relationship with their creator God. We could represent that relationship with man on one side, God on the other, in a straight line representing a, a perfectly harmonious relationship. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. They sinned. And they, their sin broke their relationship that they had enjoyed with God. So instead of an intimate relationship that they had previously enjoyed with God, their sin created a relationship that now looks like this. They're separated by this huge chasm between themselves and God. And the first two verses are entitled, All Have Sinned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Isaiah 53.6 states that all of us, each one of us, all of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All have sinned. All have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. There are absolutely no exceptions. It includes all of us. The next two verses are titled, Sin's Penalty. Romans 6.23 said that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the first part of that verse. The wages of sin is death. That's referring to both physical death, that's a reality of life. We're all going to die physically. But it's also talking about a spiritual death the separation that we experience from God because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 says that, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, that's physical death, and after this comes judgment. We will stand before God, every one of us. So far, it's all been bad news. But thank God that's not the end of the story. The next two verses are titled, Christ Paid the Penalty. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. To bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, 
made alive in the Spirit. Christ paid the penalty with his own life for your sin and for mine. Now, unfortunately, human nature being what is it, what it is, we, we resist the fact that Jesus is prepared to pick up the tab for our sin. We think if, if we can just do enough good things, God will be pleased and want a relationship with us. And so we set out to be better people. We're going to attend church more often. We're going to volunteer at different organizations. We're going to give more to charity. We're going to attempt to be better neighbors. All good things. But the next set of verses eliminates the possibility of ever being good enough. They're titled, Salvation Not by Works. All our good deeds fall short of bridging that gap that we sense is there between ourselves and God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, said, He saves us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's all God. must receive Christ, is the next two verses. This is how we approach, appropriate God's initiative, where we, we own it, we, we take it to ourselves, and appropriate God's initiative to, to mend this broken relationship between us. He's offering us a free gift. John chapter 1, verse 12, tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, paints a picture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, knocking at the door of our heart. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. The last two verses communicate some wonderful good news. They're titled, Assurance of Salvation. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, so that, purpose statement, you may know that you have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24, reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We cross over from death to life. I was introduced to this little diagram through the Navigators, the intensive discipleship group on the campus of the University of Guelph back in the late 1970s. They were teaching us how to share our faith with others. Over the years, I found it to be a really helpful tool in sharing my faith. And I've drawn it on the backs of napkins, scrap pieces of paper, anything available. Not bathroom partitions, not like that. But on overhead transparencies and all kinds of presentations. At the end of each one of those presentations, I always ask, does that make sense to you? And once we clarify any confusion, I usually follow it up by saying, so where would you place yourself on that diagram? You see, the, the gospel, it calls for response. And you never know how someone's going to respond. You never know. But what we do know is that responses to that call of the gospel will vary. Anticipate a variety of responses to the gospel. I think that's what John is reporting here. In John chapter 11, verse 54, through to the end of verse 11 in John chapter 12. There are a variety of responses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 55 of John chapter 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come up to the feast at all? So the Jews, the Jews had arrived early in the city of Jerusalem to make preparations for the Passover celebrations. And they were seeking Jesus. How do you read that? What does that mean? Why do you think they were seeking him? Remember what happened in the previous two Passovers? The first Passover, two years ago, Jesus decided to do a house cleaning in the temple courtyard. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 15, we read, And he made a scourge, a whip of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of money, changers and overturned their tables. The next year, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem trying to fly under the radar. Yet as soon as he gets to 
Jerusalem, he heads for the temple and begins to teach. And his teaching is no less disruptive than his house cleaning. So these two previous Passovers had become, or his performance at them, had become the, the talk of the town. I think these people were wondering, wow, I wonder what's going to happen this year. wonder what kind of headlines he's going to make or how it's going to play on the evening news. Let's call these folks curious. They were curious as to what Jesus was going to do next. Was he even going to show up? I place these folks near the middle of the continuum. Middle of our planning to kill Jesus, on the one hand, and then believing in him as the Christ, on the other. They could kind of land in the middle. In my mind, it could still go either way. Look at the last verse in John chapter 11, verse 57. Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. This is an entirely different response. These chief priests and Pharisees, they put out an APB on Jesus. They've issued a warrant for his arrest. He is now a wanted man. And the posters don't read wanted, dead, or alive yet, but they certainly want him off the streets, as in yesterday. It's interesting. Let's call their response suppressive. Reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's exactly what these chief priests and Pharisees are attempting to do here in John chapter 11, verse 54. Suppressing the way, the truth, and the life by issuing an unrighteous warrant for his arrest. This response I put on the planning to kill him end of the continuum. Notice the first three verses of John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Jesus is back in Bethany. Martha's doing her thing, serving, 
making sure that everybody gets enough to eat. Lazarus, well, he's reclining at the table with Jesus. Seems to me like that's a position of teachability. He's attentive. He's, he's learning from Jesus. Mary, she's worshiping, honoring Jesus extravagantly. She anoints his feet with very expensive perfume. In fact, it's perfume that would cost the average worker an entire year's wages to purchase. And then she wipes her feet, his feet, with her hair. In this culture, Jewish women were to always have their hair up, right? One commentator describes this scene with these words. Her act of love and worship was public, spontaneous, sacrificial, lavish, personal, and unembarrassed. She remained unapologetic. In fact, it was Jesus who came to her defense. How do you summarize this threesome's response to the life and ministry of Jesus? I'd like to suggest hospitable. They welcomed him into their home. They're embracing him. And where would you place these folks on that continuum? One hand, attempting to kill Jesus. On the other hand, believing in him as the Christ, the Son of God. They're people of faith, right? Remember Martha's confession back in verse 27, chapter 11? She said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Although limited in their understanding, they're on this side of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Although limited, they certainly had faith. They were genuine believers. Look at verses 4 to 8. But... There's a big contrast going here. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said to her, said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, there's a lot that we could investigate here. But for our purposes this morning, let's just 
keep it real simple. Clearly, Judas was not interested in helping poor people. His expression of concern is exposed for what it really is, or really was, in verse 6. Did you notice? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. It's all a cover-up. What was Judas covering? Self-serving motivation. Responses to the gospel, they can be self-serving. Whatever I think is in my best interest gives me the advantage. The best interest of me and my family, what I think is right. By the way, these are actually the very first words ever recorded in any gospel account from the lips of Judas, right here. I've placed Judas on the planning to kill him and of the continuum, but still not as far over as those who were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. At this point, he is certainly drifting in their direction. And it's hardly fair because we know the rest of the story, right? When it comes to Judas. In fact, his last words ever recorded are found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 4. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Too little too late. So sad. John chapter 12, verse 9, we find the fifth response. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. How would you describe this response to the life and ministry of Jesus? I think they're investigators. These folks, they're leaning towards believing in Jesus as the Christ, end of the continuum, but not too far off the center line. They're definitely heading in the right direction at this point. The final response is found in John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Not only were the chief priests planning to kill Jesus, they now have... Lazarus in their crosshairs. Can you believe it? These are the religious leaders of Judaism. 
They're preparing to engage in first-degree murder by putting these men to death. Look at verse 48. John chapter 11. Gives us the reason why they're doing this. Our place and our nation. They're trying to protect them, themselves. Sin and opposition to the gospel can be so irrational. I think that's what Romans chapter 1 is getting at. Those people that suppress the truth and unrighteousness insist on refusing to acknowledge God. And God gives them up to their own sinfulness again and again and again. God's judgment is to give us up to our own sinful appetites. And when he does that, we drift further and further away from a relationship with him, away from truth and spiritual realities. These chief priests displayed a truly hostile response. Clearly, these religious elites represent those who are seeking to kill Jesus. They even want to add Lazarus to their hit list. Their placement on our response continuum is obvious. Jesus' life and ministry provoked a variety of responses. Anticipate a variety of responses to the gospel. We need to be realistic. Last week we read Luke's account of the parable of the sower, recorded in Luke chapter 8. Turn with me this week to Matthew's same rendition. It's also found in Mark chapter 4, but turn with, with me to Matthew chapter 13. Beginning at verse 3. And he, that's Jesus, spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had, not, had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Drop down to verse 18. This is Jesus' own explanation of his parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, 
the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. Different people will 